0: Pulitzer thing was unnerving because the spotlight was on us as reporters, and I didn't feel comfortable with that. So it was unnerving. thought, ugh, every story has to be Pulitzer Prize winning material now. And and that was troubling to me that all of a sudden, at age 28, you've met a really high standard, and how do you keep that standard up?
1: That was Pulitzer Prize winner Barbara Walsh, an author of August Gale a memoir of her grandfather, her father, and a savage 1935 hurricane that devastated Newfoundland. And I'm Martin Nutty.
2: And I'm John Lee. Welcome back to another season of Irish Stew and the Global Irish Nation Conversation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Ireland of the Welcomes magazine, celebrating 70 years of Irish history, tradition, culture, and community with outstanding photography and inspired writing. Get Ireland of the Welcomes delivered to your door or give a gift subscription and keep the Irish legacy alive for generations to come. Subscribe today online at irelandofthewelcomes.com. Welcome back to a new season of Irish Stew. Glad to have you with us again. Looking forward to some great global Irish nation conversation. We're uh, rolling this out on St. Patrick's Day week and a lot of Irish activities going on. It's going to be a busy week and uh, we look forward to uh, celebrating all the all the good things Irish. And Martin, uh, why don't you kick us off with what we have on tap today?
1: Hey, John, great to be back, uh, kicking off season five. And uh, for our very first episode of this new season, I'm delighted to have a guest who is a journalist and an author. And while in her 20s, she won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on a crime story, that story likely changed the outcome of a presidential election. And over the last 20 years, she has continued to report, but has also expanded her brief to writing children's books and a family memoir. Barbara Walsh, to foil to on pod Welcome to Irish Stew.
0: Well, I'm honored to be a part of Irish Stew, and I, I love the, the title of your podcast, and I'm Irish-American and very proud of it, and so I'm thrilled to be a part of the show. So thank you for inviting me. And I don't know what you just said, Martin, but I assume it was nice and it was Gaelic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, we had to throw in a couple of, a couple of fuckle, as they say, a couple of words in Irish. Uh, and simply it was, uh, welcome to the podcast. falta Oh, wonderful.
0: That's,
1: that's the Irish for podcast? That is the Irish for podcast, oh, yeah. that's great. So um, I'm going to kick this off, Barbara, with a very simple question. Tell me about your first writing memory.
0: Well, um, I don't know. I'd have to guess at my age, but I'd say maybe, gosh, nine or ten. My mother jokes that I never spoke until I was seven because I was the shy kid and I preferred the written word rather than the spoken word. And so I I wrote a lot of poetry. Um, I wrote my uncle 12-page letters and he thought, wow, this kid, she she has a lot of time in her hands. But I just, I love to write. It, It was my kind of escape into my own little internal world and how I view things. And and of course I love to read too. So it was those two things as I was younger, really. um, And I think I mentioned to you too before, my Nana, who was my father's mother, Patricia Walsh, um, Patricia O'Connor Walsh, and she was a wonderful storyteller. So I, at an early age, would just sit at her knee and you know she could spin tales, of course, that I thought were fiction, and I would later learn in life they were not fiction, um, and they would become you know part of a, a book I would eventually write.
1: So um, writing started early, and then uh, you moved along and headed off to college. I think you studied journalism in college. Am I correct?
0: I did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my high school teachers encouraged me to pursue a writing career, and um, I thought, well, you know, what what are the options? Teach writing or write and journalism piqued my interest. I I started this high school newspaper in Pelham, New Hampshire. And so I wound up at UNH and um, got a journalism and photography degree. And soon after graduating, I wanted to go to Ireland. That's where my ancestors were from. And I ended up, uh, I think it was January 81, with a backpack, never been on a plane, got a one-way ticket to uh, London with goals of ending up in Ireland. And naively, being a journalist, I thought, well, I'm going to infiltrate the IRA and write about them. <laughs> this is my American dream that, okay, I can I can do this. But of course, I land in London, never been on a plane, and the, and the little Bobby at the airport says, where are you going, love? And I'm like, I have no clue. And <laughs> I ended up a youth hostel, burning toast for a month. Um, but eventually, I made my way up through Wales and Scotland and, and caught the ferry um, to Larn. And the two truck drivers on the ferry said to me, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm a journalism graduate and I'm going to write about the IRA. And they're like, oh, Jesus. You know, and, they, <laughs> and of course, they, they decided at 8 a.m. we need a shot of whiskey to celebrate yeah. my going to Ireland. But they wouldn't take their eyes off me. They brought me to Belfast. They explained to me, don't speak. Um, and that was a time of still barbed wire and unattended cars and packages were blown up and So they were just, um, they were from the South, but they were traveling through. And I had a family, friends in um, Dublin, the dad was teaching and they said, we're going to bring you to their doorstep because they just didn't trust me. They didn't want to let me lose in Belfast. They thought you're never going to be seen again. And and they're very kind gentlemen. I wish I could give a shout out to them, but they Mm -hmm. were, they were like my guardian angels when I first landed in Belfast. Mm.
2: The kindness of strangers.
0: Right. And they knew they're like, oh, God, this girl is trouble. We got to get her to a safe doorstep. Um, but that was my first introduction to Ireland. And I ended up in Dublin with this family um, and tried to find work and couldn't. And I decided, well, I'll take the train to Galway. You know, I preferred a quieter city and ended up working for the paper there, the Galway Advertiser, as a photographer and um, working in a a home there, uh, kind of as light housekeeping. So I was scrubbing potatoes and starting the peat fire and making tea, which I was often cursed at as a bloody eejit because it tasted horrible <laughs> to them. Um, but that was my first introduction to Ireland.
2: That's a pretty authentic uh, experience when you're lighting the turf fire, you know. That,
0: that's, oh, gosh. Uh... I mean, you're trying to light dirt. And I would use those fire starters, which were expensive. And the woman who was my age, we became good friends. She's like, you bloody Egypt. You know, why can't you light that? And I'm like because it's dark. You know how do I do this? Um, but I loved it there. I mean i i I had a lot of adventures and returned three times. And you know it was a wonderful, wonderful year for me there.
2: You, you mentioned that in college, you part of your major was photojournalism, and your job in Galway was involved with photography.
0: Right. It was a strange thing. I couldn't be a writer there because I had to be a part of the union, but I couldn't be part of the union because I wasn't an Irish, but for some reason I could be a photographer. Mm -hmm. So I loved it. You know, photography is also um, a very strong part of my background. And when I'm writing, I like to see things visually. So photography was similar. Um, And oftentimes later in my career, I would videotape things so I could be back in that moment and hear things and see scenes because to me that's the best writing is you know you want to put somebody right there with you um and to to hear things and smell things and to feel those emotions so I often would try to my old video camera I'd be duct taping that and videotaping scenes and um as much as I could to put myself back in that moment but yeah I think photography you know as a writer it's it's the old adage is don't tell me show me and so I think photography played into that because I I, I always want to create scenes in my stories.
2: How how you frame up the story, right? Right. It can make a big difference because depending on where the focus is.
0: Right. And for me, the numbers, I mean, I'm I'm not a math person anyway, so numbers kind of frighten me. But um for me, you could tell me, you know, three thousand people died of COVID, but give me that story. Give me that one family, mm-hmm. give me that kid who lost both parents or just I want the human angle, I want the emotion and I want people to be haunted by these stories like they should be. And people would often say, I cry when I read your stories. Well I'm like, that's good, because I cry when I write them. I cry when I interview people. And and you know, for me the goal is just to strike some emotion in my reader, whether it's rage or sadness or just to feel like, okay, something needs to change here. And, and to really make them remember that story um, because we are bombarded 24-7 with news and it's too much. But you now give me that one story that I'm going to remember.
1: That's kind of an unusual perspective in a way in the world of journalism where, as I understand, it, it's often drilled into students that objectivity is primary, almost to the point that all emotion needs to be squeezed out Your angle is obviously very different.
0: Right. And I I agree when you're doing a story that's pitting two people against each other or two two, um, adversaries, you've got to obviously be fair to both parties. We all have biases. We all grow up in homes and we come from different places. And it's foolish to think that we don't have a bias going into stories. But the biggest thing for me when I learned as a journalist is You've got to do a lot of listening. And going into a story, you think, okay, this story is X. But for me, as my career evolved, I soon learned, oh, that's not the story at all. And, and I think that's the trick of journalism, that you really got to be open to listening to people and understanding um, and not coming in with this preconceived notion that you're not going to let go of. And again, going into that bias of, uh, you know, I grew up Irish Catholic. And what do I know about other religions in my small town? But to me, the best part of journalism was always learning. I mean, it was just like every day you'd be learning new things. So that was a trick. But I I also acknowledge, Martin, that call it from my Irish roots that I'm an emotional person, you know, and the old you're not crying, you're cursing and fighting. And I mean, that's me. Like, I'm you know where I'm coming from. Like, I'm not going to hide my emotions and I'm not embarrassed, you know, and I've interviewed people who you know, have lost their son to suicide or, you know, lost their dad and COVID and they couldn't say goodbye. I mean, I relate to my dad and, and hospice holding his hand and I, we were there 24-7 for four days and, and it just killed me that these families couldn't be there. So I put that kind of personal experience into my stories of, you know, good God, you know, if I couldn't say goodbye to my dad and hold his hand, how heartbreaking that would be. So I I try to transfer my experiences, how they relate to the story. But obviously I I don't throw my dad in the middle. I did write an essay on that, but I, I, I just don't shut my feelings out because I also think one of my, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, they'd call me the angel of death. I mean, I could get anybody to talk no matter what the traumatic situation was. And I think part of the reason is because I would always go in and, and say, I'm sorry. You know, when I'm, I'm one of six girls and I can't imagine what you're going through and, and being authentic and yeah, sometimes crying during those interviews because, you know, if you don't cry, like, you know, I mean, it'd just be hard for me not to show that emotion. And again, it's not, it's not crocodile tears. It's just the heartbreak of whatever I'm covering and people see that you care. You're not just out there for this headline, but I truly care. And I I try to put those feelings into the story.
1: Barbara, you just mentioned uh, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, and of course, that's the publication uh, where you ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize in 1988. Uh, Tell us about your start there.
0: Right. So I was in my mid-20s, hired by the Tribune, and originally, you know, working your way up, you're covering small town politics and having to sit through some God awful long meetings and saying, I hate this, you know, (laughs) my but again, you know, the more you listen, you would always pick up a story. So eventually I was put on the William Horton Jr. story and Horton in um, 1974, he and two of his buddies robbed a gas station in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And. Joey Fournier, who was 17 at the time, handed over all their money, you know, gave them the money willingly. And he was stabbed 19 times and his body stuffed in a garbage can. And so, of course, Horton and his two pals were put away life without parole. So that means you're never getting out. And so we learn in um, spring of 87, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, which is right next door to Lawrence in North Andover or Andover, Mass., and we learn Horton escaped from prison. And we're thinking, well, how does that happen? I mean, he's in a secure prison, as he should be. And then we learn Massachusetts was letting killers and rapists out on the weekend, unsupervised. And the reason being, we eventually found out, is because that was as a result of rioting in some of these prisons. They decided, well, if we tell them behave in prison, we'll let you out on the weekend, again, unsupervised, um, that would help control some of these Outbursts in prison. Well, Horton, who was facing you know life in prison, decided not to go back during one of these furloughs, and of course he went to Florida and eventually went to Maryland, where he assumed a new identity, worked as a landscaper, and then stalked this couple who were living together, this young couple, and surprised them, held them hostage, raped the woman twice, uh, tied the, the fiance up in the basement, stabbed him repeatedly. And they both would have died. If not, they escaped. And then Horton was in a car chase with police who captured him. Um, But it was just, it showed his mentality and clearly he should not have been released unsupervised. I mean, it was just madness. And so it began a year-long program of, you know, our newspaper trying to find out more about these furloughs. And of course, the prison system, you know, was under fire and people were outraged, you know, including police who had no idea about this program. Uh, Meanwhile, we're writing stories every day. Massachusetts prison system is saying every other state has a similar furlough program. So after I called 50 federal agencies saying, tell me about furloughs across the country, they said, we don't know. So I called every state in the country and said, tell me about your furlough program. And do you let killers and rapists out on the weekend? And they're like, no, you know, like Massachusetts <laughs> was the only one doing this. Um, furloughs were designed for people getting out of prison uh to look for a home or a job, not for killers like Horton. so it clearly um you know was a, a law that was put on the books that few people knew about and few people understood and then during that time period, George Bush senior, you know, was running for president, and all of a sudden, we're getting phone calls in the newsroom from this guy named Newt. And we're like, who is this guy, Newt? You know, at the time, Newt Gingrich was not, you know, was well known. And they were very interested in those Horton stories. So we soon learned that that was going to be part of the national presidential debate. And here's George Bush talking about Dukakis letting killers and rapists out on the weekend. Um, so it evolved into um, quite the campaign issue. And there's Uh, some commercials out there, The Revolving Door, which has Horton's face. And, you know, it was a very intimidating commercial. A lot of people said it was racist. Um, Here's a black man who was accused of raping a white woman in Maryland. So it played into all those stereotypes. And uh, Bush's campaign manager, Lee Atwater, had said he knew Horton was gold for this campaign. And he said, I'm going to make Willie Horton a household name. And he did And that really affected the election. And um, as we all know, Dukakis was not elected to serve in the White House that year.
1: So Mike Dukakis, of course, was the uh, governor of Massachusetts at the time and the Democratic nominee. Right. And as I understand it, in the summer of 88 leading into the election against George Bush Sr., he was leading the election, uh, the polling, by something like 15 percentage points and ultimately lost by seven percentage points. Now, most political commentators, looking back at that 1988 election, believed that the Willie Horton ad changed the actual outcome of the election. Um, I I was interested to note that when you referred uh, to Horton, you referred to him as William Horton, and the use of the first name Willie in some respects was considered to be racist. Right. So it, I assume that that's the name that you used in your reporting, but I'm exactly. curious about your thoughts on that.
0: You know? No, I, I totally, those ads, I mean, I still, you know, I'll Google that once in a while and, and it clearly plays on fears and stereotypes and racism attitudes, but our reporting, we did call him William Horton Jr. because that mm-hmm. Willie, and Horton has talked about this in stories since Willie is obviously sort of a, you know, again, a stereotypical derogatory. Some people could look at it like that. So we always,
2: juvenile, you know, it, kind of juvenile,
0: exactly like boy, you know? And, and so, yeah. but, you know, it didn't matter if for our journalism, if Horton was purple, he was still someone that never should have been let out of prison to do these horrible things to this Maryland couple. and, and it clearly exposed Massachusetts furlough program, which again, our newspaper wrote about for over a year and killers and rapists don't get out in Massachusetts anymore on the weekend. And, and you know, that law was changed because of our coverage. So I, you know, I am proud of the work we did and, and just explaining what's going on here. And um, so it, 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 and it was a, definitely as a journalist who was only 28 years old, it was quite a lesson in how powerful stories can be and, you know, how much responsibility um, journalists have. And I told Martin the story when I was out, I was sent out to cover the trial in Maryland, you know, with Horton, who was accused of rape and attempted murder and, you know, the police car crash. And reporters out there really didn't know much about Horton. So I was the only one in the courtroom, very small. And Horton knew who I was because his family was sending stories that we had written so of course my editor Horton was convicted, and, and the judge out there, who was very quotable and on CNN often, said as he was sentencing Horton that, "Tell Massachusetts don't leave the porch light on because you know William Horton is never coming home." You know it, it was just classic. But my editor said get an interview with him after the conviction, and I said okay. And of course they agreed, which is great. On the flip side, here's Horton who knows where I am and who I am, and so of course I get into the prison and the doors are clanging and I have no idea what the setup is when I interview him in a room together, separated by glass. And thankfully we were, um, and again, being a young reporter, one of my first questions I asked him as we're separated by glass and, and, uh, I said, how did you get out on furlough? You weren't a great prisoner. He was in fights, he was doing drugs and he starts screaming and stands up and, you know, he's about to leave and I'm thinking, oh God, I just blew it. You know, and I, I'm like, well, how's your family? How's your mother? You know, I was just trying to calm him down and he had me rip up my notebook pages that I'd scribbled on. And um, of course the interview continued and he said to me, I'm not a monster. And I'm quietly thinking, well, I, I beg <laughs> to differ, but um, then it came around. I asked about furloughs again and he exploded and was taken away screaming. So that was the last I saw him. Um, but I, I do think, despite he's supposedly a good prisoner now and discovered, you know, many things in prison, but Horton's the kind of person that belongs in prison
2: yeah.
0: for his crimes.
2: You mentioned something that was going to be kind of my next question about the, uh, the the power and responsibility of journalists that you recognized. What what do you think the state of that is today in journalism today, that, that uh, imperative?
0: Well, I think there's a lot of shameful journalism, um, <laughs> and I won't. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the recent case with Dominion suing Fox News, and, and you know, the recent reporting on that they privately thought, you know, this election, the big steal is all a bunch of garbage. But then they're going on and saying, you know, because of the ratings, you know, fueling those fantasies, and I, I just think it's it's not jun- journalism. It's just, I-, I don't know what to call it, but it's, it's shameful. And it mm-hmm. really makes me cringe because I, you know, as a journalist, you often hear, Oh, the media, Oh, the media. I mean, I think the media can and still does great work. I mean, the New York times coverage of, you know, the Ukraine's war and, you know, the Washington post. I mean, they're, they're certainly, you know, giants in the journalism world. So I think there's still wonderful, uh, compelling stories being told again in Maine you know there's great newspapers and great journalists but you know things like that that you know you're blatantly lying for ratings it just it makes me sick
2: and a lot of bloviating uh you know I mean so so many of the television you know cable news they're not journalists and which is it is okay you can be you can have a certain you know, point of view but there's just so many of the voices coming at you that have a point of view that don't have that journalistic
0: right there's no or, substance there's, yeah, yeah. And, and now i tend not to watch tv news i, I mm-hmm. watch occasionally cnn but not i get npr is kind of what i listen to um right. and it reminds me when i was living in ireland my friend she constantly had you know the irish radio on and you know while you're multitasking and i love that and you know so for me npr national public radio is you know again people criticize them for being more liberal but there's substance to their stories. So mm-hmm. that's where I get most of my news. And, you know, I read the York Times every day and local Maine papers in New England as well. But I'm not, I, I watching TV news gives me a headache. I just, <laughs> it's all doom and gloom. And I, I just, there's a lot more out there.
1: I will admit to being a NPR addict as well. Um, but um, before we move on from the Horton case, can you talk a bit about, the weaponization of that piece of journalism. Uh, You mentioned that Newt Gingrich, uh, who I don't think at the time was Speaker of the House, but was, was going to become the Speaker of the House and one of the most politically powerful men ultimately in the United States, was calling up your newsroom looking for more details on the Horton case. Tell me about the repercussions to you personally Were you on the receiving end of angry Democrats that your story had undermined Michael Dukakis? Were you called out for being racist? And what does that do to somebody? You're only in your 20s. You're still pretty darn young, and you won a Pulitzer Prize. So talk about the outcome of all this.
0: Well, it was overwhelming. I mean, the the whole... Pulitzer thing. And, and, you know, again, I'll, I'll harken it back to being an Irish. It's kind of like after we won, there was so much attention on us. And as a journalist, that's very unusual. You're the one asking questions, you're writing stories, but all of a sudden myself and, you know, this other reporter, Susan Forrest, who had worked, you know, a, a, a lot on the story. We both kind of came in at different points on it, but you know, we were on like the cover of Boston Magazine. We were being interviewed by the Boston Globe. We were, um, you know, on radio shows and it was very unnerving because again, you know, we were just doing our jobs and, and following a story. Um, and, and we were led by terrific editors, you know, and so then eventually, you know, people started saying, well, the Horton story was racist and, um, you know, I think that stems from, like you say, the campaign. And I'll stand by every story I wrote. There was nothing, you know, again, Horton was Black. Those campaign commercials were definitely, you know, Atwater knew what they were doing. I mean, that was kind of like the first example of how you can take a story of crime, you know, and put fear in people's minds and really um affect a national election like that and and just get into people's heads of you know Horton did become a household name, people knew, and like you say, Dukakis was ahead, and he just thought, well, I didn't create the law, it's not a bad law, but clearly, um you know all of this campaigning and then the national debate, so we were you know in news stories, I was never attacked personally, um you know people never come up to me, whether it was a Democrat or you know someone else but there were stories after that said, you know, that questioned our coverage. But again, it was, you know, Courton clearly was sick and it was just real simple. Like you don't want someone like that being released, um, from prison. So I, I, the whole Pulitzer thing was unnerving because again, the spotlight was on us as reporters and I didn't feel comfortable with that. So it was more you know, for me, that was unnerving that, you know, I, I thought, Ugh, every story has to be Pulitzer Prize winning material now. And, and that was kind of um, troubling to me that all of a sudden, at age 28, you've met a really high standard. And how do you keep that standard up? And I, I certainly think through the years after that affected you know, my stories, I, I, you know, I always wanted to make sure they're accurate, they were fair. And, and then I knew like the potential of how a story could change lives and laws. So I always carried that with me. Um, but no, I was never, you know, I, I feel comfortable with what we did and, you know, like those, I definitely think those commercials played on the race card and they became kind of a, You know, people looked at that campaign and said, oh, this is the way to go. Like this became like a, you know, a platform for people to kind of go after issues and um, really stir fear and especially with crime.
2: I'd like to uh, take you into the next section that we want to talk about is your book, your other kinds of writing. And as uh, as we kind of segue from journalism into the book you wrote, from the kind of objective viewpoint of a journalist to the more personal viewpoint of, to a certain extent, a, a memoir, a memoirist. Uh, one thing I picked up in in reading about you is it seems you have quite an aversion to deadlines. <laughs> so uh, so you you move from the deadline charged world of journalism to where. You're putting the deadline on yourself. How, how did you
0: make that segue? Well, the deadline thing is funny because any editor that listens to this podcast will be like, yeah, Barbara's a pain in the ass with the deadline. <laughs> I always push deadline to the extreme. You know, there was there was a scene in the um, Lawrence newsroom. And this is back in the day it was publishing in the afternoon and there was a shootout on the streets of Lawrence. And so I had a phone to each ear from two reporters and I'm trying to type on deadline. And this is in the old days when the, the newspaper was printed, you know, in that building and the red light would go on when they started the presses. And so I'm trying to write poetic because, you know, I'm Irish. I want everything to be pretty in my stories. I want the words to be beautiful. And I'm trying to write, you know, it was a beautiful morning in the streets of Lawrence and gunfire erupted. And I see the editor who looked like Lou Grant and was just as tough coming out of his newsroom I mean his, his office and he's like the red lights flashing and he's like Walsh and I'm like what he's like what the hell are you doing Where the presses are going we gotta write this and he's like there was a shootout on the streets of Lawrence today period you know one person was shot period <laughs> police have arrested two men period no other details are known. period send the goddamn story you know and i'm sitting there like okay boss you know but it, deadline i always i have, i guess i'll admit I'm, i i want my stories to be as perfect and as powerful as they can be and so i agonize over every word and so in college i missed uh, a magazine writing deadline and this was back before cell phones and internet and i thought well i had a few more days to finish my magazine story i turned it in the professor said I'm giving you an F. Grades are closed. And I looked at him like, you know, and I'm a junior in writing journalism major. And he said, you know, maybe you ought to pursue photography instead. And I walked out of there. Like, I just didn't know what to say. And my dad told me, he's like, you're a writer, you have a gift. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would have continued because my confidence was shattered. But that's where the deadline phobia comes in. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't like to push deadlines, but On top of it, you know, I I missed a deadline and he has a professor saying, you know, maybe you ought to pursue photography instead. And so that was always in the back of my head. Um, But it's kind of parallels with, I want every story to be, you got to literally rip it away from me, you know, and I've had many editors screaming at me like, you know, that's it. Finish the goddamn story, (laughs) you know, so I, and then, you know, segueing to books, um, the August Gale, which is you know I've written children's book, but that's my you know nonfiction kind of like the perfect storm um and and as Martin said, my Mar, I'd been writing stories that took me a year, like you know a series about alcoholism in Maine or domestic violence or teen suicide, you know, all uplifting things, but as I explained to my daughters, you know there's always there's always good things, there's always change when you write about you know. Dark stories and awaken people to what's happening. But anyway, my I'd seen the perfect storm, and I knew I was like, I want to write stories like that. I want to write a book. And so when I told that to my dad one night, he said, "You have a story like that in your family." And he starts telling me about my ancestors in Newfoundland, which I had never known anything about because my dad's father, who was born in Marytown, um, abandoned my dad, my uncle, and Nana twice. So he never spoke about him. And I was 18 before I realized, you know, I'd say, where's grandpa to my Nana? And she'd say, he's dead. When I was 18, my dad said, no, he's in California with another family. So, but it was dropped, you know, nothing was ever spoken again until this night when I said to my dad, I want to, I want to write books. And he said, you have a story like this in your family. And then he agrees to, to contact the Newfoundland family. And I'm like, what? Ambrose's family? You know, like." All of a sudden, I'm just stunned, and that led to nine years of traveling to Newfoundland with my dad and my sister, and um, you know, researching. And I went twice more to Newfoundland on my own, and um, you know, interviewed my dad's family, including Ambrose's daughters in California, to piece together my dad's childhood. And we traveled to Brooklyn and Staten Island, and you know, places where my dad had lived as a kid, uh, Red Hook where ambrose abandoned them the first time and those stories that my nana told me when i was a little girl she used to say to me you know she'd say oh there were rats running around up and down the stairs and the mafia used to look out for us and i'm thinking these are stories you know my nana's just spinning yarns these were real stories after ambrose left them um you know in the mid 40s yeah i think was, you know they had no money um they were penniless. And my Nana did rely on, you know, charitable Catholic organizations. She'd go to church to pray. And yeah, there were rats in the stairway and the mob was kind of looking after them. And so years later, I'm learning all about my father's childhood pain. And, you know, six months later, Ambrose says, um, and the reason he left, he left with his mistress who had had their baby. They go to San Francisco. And then, you know, six months later, Ambrose calls and says, I miss you, you know, come out with my sons. You know, my dad was um, about 12. My uncle Bill was about two, actually maybe more like 13 and, you know, four. And um, they go out there. And of course, things are okay for a while. And then Ambrose is the mistress is pregnant again. The mistress is coming to have tea with my Nana, which just Mm -hmm. shows you. I mean, she was an angel that couldn't turn anybody away. So the mistress is upset because Nana is there with my dad and uncle and She's having tea, but it eventually got so bad. My my grandfather was a gambler, so my dad would see him on the streets and and hate him for what he was doing. But you know, he'd give him a few coins and disappear into this darkened, you know, bookie joint. And then my dad would go back, and you know, my nana was in bed. She wouldn't get out of bed, and she nearly jumped out the window. And it was, of course, a Catholic priest that said to her, Mrs. Walsh, the state's gonna take your children if you don't come out of this. So they were wired money and went back to Massachusetts. But um, that's the memoir side of August Gale. But it it just um, was really emotional for me to be, you know, I've interviewed killers and, you know, families that lost people tragically. But I'm interviewing my dad now about his childhood Mm -hmm. pain. And I kept saying, Dad, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt you. He said, don't worry, I trust you. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm a reporter. You know, I'm gonna, I, I want, I've got to tell the story. I've got to tell the truth. And uh, so the other flip side is the Newfoundland piece, which is, I like to say the book is about two storms, the family storm and the Newfoundland storm, which in 1935 in August Gale roared up the coast. And the, the dorymen, the fishermen, my great uncle, Captain Patty, who, again, all these Irish people. Um, went to Newfoundland and so many of my ancestors um, came over and you know became fishermen there and Captain Patty Walsh was of course legendary um, cod fisherman and this particular storm there were two ships going out he was with his sons who were 12 and 14 and a crew of four other men and then there was his son James who was captaining his own ship for the first time so they're going out and there's no. You know, All they have is their awareness of the sea and the dory ship are going out. And all of a sudden the anchors are twirling and there's something bad coming. And so the story is also about, you know, the storm that, you know, took, um, you know, affected 300 families in this small town of Marystown. You know, 14 men were gone, two kids. And, you know, so it was a historic loss. And so I went out to interview and, and it was just incredible, um, you know, interviewing people about that gale and, and sort of the waves that come over the mast and very few survived that storm. So that was my, you know, like you say, it took me nine years to write it because I was working full-time as a journalist with young daughters, and, but it was probably the most emotional story because it was my family.
1: Talk to me a little bit about the linkage in your book so you tell the two stories in parallel you tell the story of your father and his abandonment by his father your grandfather ambrose Uh, your father's ronnie Um, and the storm itself do you see any linkage between those two things because in the opening phase of the book you talk about your grandfather being i believe in brooklyn and a sitting on a bench and seeing a newspaper twirling around in the wind, do you see your father's abandonment some to some degree linked to this horrendous hurricane in 1935 that killed, you know, 14 men, well, 12 men and two children out of a small village in Newfoundland?
0: Right. And and people have asked, and my grandfather was dead long before I started this story, so I could never ask him. But people, and I speculated too, and I don't want to give away too much in the book, but Ambrose did lose his brother, his nephews, his cousins. He lost, I mean, Marystown was, you know, village of 500, and 42 children had lost fathers in this storm. And it was just crippling to that community and, and the grief. So Ambrose here he isn't you're right. He's on a pier in Brooklyn and this newspaper is just twirling at his feet and he reads the headline and this was a real paper that I later found in archives, you know, you know, several feared dead in, you know, Newfoundland and he knows his brother, Captain Patty, who was sort of like a father to Ambrose, is out in that storm. He knows, you know, Patty's sons, three sons are out in that gale, and he knows his cousins are out there in his um, so I think the pain from that storm, you know, clearly was something that probably affected Ambrose all his life, that huge loss. And he couldn't afford the money to go back for any of the wakes or the funerals. So that's also, you know, I think a wound that never healed. He was never able to say goodbye. Um, so I I definitely think it affected him, um, that storm and it and it was entwined because you know, as my dad grew up and the pain of, you know, his hero was Ambrose. Ambrose abandoned him twice. And, and then he saw the pain that his na- his mother went through. So, it, it, you know, it kind of reverberated through generations. And, you know, it's kind of, I believe it was fate that I was supposed to write about this. You know, I, I went to Newfoundland to search for my grandfather, who I'd never met and never seen pictures of until I started research on this book.
2: You know, there's a, uh, you've you've spent time in Ireland and you spent time in Newfoundland and we know there's a very strong connection between those two areas. Did you, did it feel like an outpost of Ireland in some ways?
0: Oh, it did for sure. And which I love because I felt like I was right back in Ireland and you know, it just, the way they spoke, it was the sing song kind of lyrical Irish and the hospitality and of course, everyone knew we were coming to the small village. You know, I mean, Marystown is still, you know, not that big. I mean, obviously, it's grown, but it's um, not an easy place to get to. It's down on the Buren Peninsula. But the minute we pulled, and of course, our relatives were waiting for us. We were staying at their camp, and and so they, people in that community, I all knew we were coming, and we all look alike. You know, the dark hair and the mannerisms and. So of course, you know, we pulled into town and of course, en route, you're going down the, um, yeah, nothing but scrub brush. And, you know, my dad's like, where the hell are we? And, (laughs) you know, we get there and it's just getting dark and, you know, eventually we're, we pull in front of Captain Patty's house, which is this just gorgeous historic home that it was an old hotel that he ended up buying. But, you know, I'm just like seeing the house and all of a sudden this fellow comes down and Oh, you're the Walsh's. And, you know, he's just, they all knew us. And they started saying, you know, you're related. We were related to everybody in that village. You know, it's just, Oh, you're my second, third, fourth, fifth cousin. And I lost track, but I have a lot of cousins there. And, but the hospitality, you know, the, the Brentons who took us in our relatives and they couldn't do enough for us. And, um, and so it was sort of five days of crazy nonstop interviewing, but, um, I felt like I was right back in Ireland. And, you know, again, they, in Newfoundland, they say, welcome home. My dad kept saying, this isn't home, but to them it's, it's our home. That's where, you know, his, his roots began, you know, I mean, from Ireland to Newfoundland, you know, but it was just, they still can say like, when are you coming home? And I've been back several times, but I love it. You know, and of course my, my cousin Jack Brenton took me one night to St. George's street and um, St. John's, which is a fabulous city. And of course we, see, you know, lots of Irish music everywhere and we're out far too late, <laughs> you know, eating French fries at, I don't know, 2.00 AM. So I, I did feel like I was right back in Ireland and then the music and again, the people and the storytelling. Um I just, and the music, it, it's just everything. I, um I love going there and I'm due for, due for a, a trip back there and a trip back to Ireland as well.
1: You know, one of the, Interesting things um, about your book, um, which I I don't think you were was necessarily central to the book, but I get the sense of the economics of the time, the Great Depression, right? Nineteen thirty-five, this hurricane roars into Newfoundland and just causes awful devastation, but. Your grandfather, Ambrose, is also working down in New York in the 1930s. And you get a sense of living from hand to mouth with all these people in a way that is foreign. And at the end of the book, you kind of talk about the women who have lost their husbands being fearful that their children were going to be taken away from them because they can't put... You know, food in their mouths. So was was that purposeful, or you know, was that just background?
0: Well, no. I mean, it paralleled the story of these women in the village who suddenly lost, you know, their husbands, and they had, you know, five kids or whatever, and, and they would say, I mean, and back then, you know, 1935, you weren't getting too much money from the government to help you out, so they had to rely on you know, the vegetables and and any fish they could get. But, you know, when when the constables would come around and, you know, the women would put boiling water on the stove and say, oh, no, dinner's cooking. I mean, there was nothing to put in that pot. And the constables would say, we're going to take your kids. And, you know, they'd say, no, they're going to die here before you take them. You know, and, and some kids did end up in the orphanage, but it paralleled kind of what my Nana was going through. I mean, she, you know, in Red Hook, just no money, um, and really struggled, you know, relied on charities and tried to work herself. And then again, in California, I mean, she's in in a place where she knows no one and trying to figure out how to feed her sons and, and deal with her depression. And, um, so I, as I was writing the book, it paralleled, you know, here's my Nana in a strange place all alone. And, you know, her husband abandons, abandons her again. So but the men, you know, lost at sea. Obviously, I mean, that wasn't their choice to, um, you know, die there. But it, just the struggle, as you say, Martin. Times were tough. I mean, it was just after the depression, and you know, in that small village, Marystown, Mar- Mar- there was not a lot of money anyway. And you know, for my nana, you know, being a single woman in the '40s, you know, that's that's not that wasn't common. And so, and you know, I related to you know these women struggling somehow to feed their kids and and try to fend off the government, just like my Nana. I mean, that priest said, we're going to take your kids. You don't snap out of this. And, you know, so, and again, it was always family, like that village, people tried to help one another. And um, again, I don't want to give away too much, but Captain Patty's wife, she lost a husband and three sons. And, you know, those stories, I mean, I was interviewing people in their 80s and 90s. And of course, I had to do a lot of shouting, (laughs) you know, just... Shouting at people there, say what? But the stories, they all remembered Captain Patty's wife Lillian just screaming, just, you know, for nights on end. Um, and of course, all of the Irish connections of spirits, you know, a lot of them saw spirits, they saw their fathers, they saw their husbands. Um, and they, they certainly had the superstitions of, you know, you, no women on the boats and you don't wave to your man, you don't flip a bread. Pin over because that's bad luck. Your your husband's ship may flip, and but the Irishness and the um, connections of you know certainly the Catholic religion and the priest, and that was another um, thing. The priest having to go knock on these doors in Marystown. I mean, literally, and and say your your dad's died, your your sons died, you've lost three sons and a husband, Um, and it was just um, just incredible for these women, like you say to somehow persevere and they did i mean most of them you know they found ways to feed their kids
2: is is there any kind of a memorial uh in the town now a plaque a statue
0: or... well they're working on and, and this is something mm. i need to check on because they were working on a memorial with all the names that were lost mm. um because it is it's, it's mary's town and i was trying to urge them to do sort of historical markers around the community as well like you know here was captain patty's house and um you know just because back in the day you know schooners and dories just filled that bay um in marystown it was just um that was their livelihood and and cod was king you know they would come home and and like i say captain patty was you know he was they're all irish catholic and the men would bring their rosaries and um holy water so when the waves would rise they would throw that into the sea to calm them but captain patty would climb to the top of the mast and shout at god i'm not afraid of you and, and here's these catholic fishermen saying come down patty um but but the storytelling of uh, to me the the connections of you know fishermen in ireland and fishermen in newfoundland and, um you know is all very rich in similar themes to me um of ties to religion and superstitions and you know the spirits um so like i say some people believe in that and not, but it, I didn't want my book to read like a Stephen King novel. But it, it, it seemed like a fair amount of people felt the presence of these lost men.
2: Well, the, the memorial and the historic marker sound like a great idea. But until then, there is a there is a monument to, to that in your book, August Gale. Uh, as we get to this point of the program, unfortunately, we have to close with your Seamus plug. What should our listeners do for you? What where should we direct them to?
0: Well, of course, I, I would love for them to read August Gale, and I still do many book talks and Zoom. I do book clubs and so forth. But my dad, who has since passed away in 2016, before I even started writing the book, you know, we we're all familiar with the stories and the scenes and convinced this is a movie. It's dramatic. It's emotional. It's visual. Lots of great, authentic, true characters. So my dad picked Paul Newman to play him. And of course, my sisters <laughs> were, you know, talking about different characters to play them as well. But my dad, who was one of my biggest fans and promoting the book and handing out bookmarks, we always said, we're going to get this movie made. And so i written a movie script it's not my forte um, but i am continually trying to figure out ways to get this on the screen and potentially you know people say barbara maybe it's better on netflix because it the book does go back and forth in time which you really can't do much of in a movie you don't want to confuse visu- visually um but so that's my my shameless shameless plug is i want to see august gale on the screen and whether it's a movie or streaming Netflix, Amazon Prime, everyone that reads the book is just like, this would make a great movie. I mean, it's not just me. It's it's just kind of visual and dramatic. So that's one of my goals and being Irish and stubborn and I won't give up on it.
2: Uh, we, we have some filmmakers in our Irish stew alumni uh, roster. Let's see what we can do.
0: That'd be wonderful. We'll get you guys out there in Dory's.
1: Absolutely. Extras. You we'll
0: can be, be sending <laughs> off the storm.
1: We'll be extras. And so, with that, uh, Barbara Walsh, I would like to thank you for taking the time uh, to sit with us and tell us something about your life story and your wonderful memoir, August Gale. I love the book. There's a lot more meat in that book that we didn't even get to touch upon, uh, but you got to keep something fresh. But it's been A real pleasure um, hearing about your story. Um, We look forward to seeing a version of this story on Netflix. So any listeners out there, uh, if you know somebody that is in the movie making business or trying to get a, or familiar with how to get a great story on Netflix, here's your opportunity to work with a Pulitzer prize winning journalist. So, Thank you, Barbara. I look forward to speaking again.
0: Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. You're wonderful. And I will certainly be a loyal fan to the Irish stew.
2: You know, Martin, uh, Barbara was talking about the sort of the Irish spirits that she was uncovering in her book, August Gale, the way they look back and they saw their ancestors in their time of peril. You know, when she told an earlier story from her career, I think she found a couple of other Irish spiritual entities when she was on her way to Belfast to infiltrate the IRA as a journalist. And two folks she met on the boat sort of took her under her
1: wing and kept her from harm's way. I think they might have been spirits as well. Sometimes you have guardian angels around you and you don't even realize it. I think that particular story is a testimony to how welcoming people can be of Irish origin. Indeed, anybody that has any understanding of Irish history understands the hardships that Irish people have faced over the course of their lives, whether it is in Ireland, whether it is immigrants to the United States, or in this case, immigrants to Newfoundland. And that kind of welcoming hospitality that you see all the time from Ireland certainly resonates with me. Yeah, it was great to be able to dip our
2: toe into that global Irish outpost in Newfoundland and hopefully we'll go back for more.
1: I'm looking forward to that and delighted to have our first Pulitzer Prize winning journalist on Irish Stew. Hopefully the first of many other firsts going forward. And a few of those firsts are going to happen in the next few weeks as we get
2: into our new season and we really welcome you all back and thanks for listening.
1: Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahlo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.